Chapter 20 of Memories and Adventures This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by a fine voice. Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 20 My Political Adventures. Central Edinburgh. A knockout. The border boroughs. Tariff reform. Heckling. Interpolations. Defeat. Reflections. I have twice stood for Parliament, though if anyone were to ask me my real reasons for doing so, I should find it difficult to give them an intelligible answer. It certainly was from no burning desire to join that august assembly, for in each case I deliberately contested seats, which every expert considered to be impossible. And though on one occasion I very nearly proved the experts to be wrong, my action is nonetheless a sign that I had no great wish to be at the head of the poll, for other and easier seats had been offered me. In the case of central Edinburgh, for which I stood in the 1900 election, there may have been some sentimental call, for it was the section of the city where I was educated and where much of my boyhood was spent. It was said to be the premier radical stronghold of Scotland, and to carry it would be a fine exploit, for though I was a good deal of a radical myself in many ways, I knew that it would be a national disgrace and possibly an imperial disaster if we did not carry the Boer War to complete success, and that was the real issue before the electors. I believe that Providence one way or another gets a man's full powers out of him, but that it is essential that the man himself should cooperate to the extent of putting himself in the way of achievement. Give yourself the chance always. If it is so fated, you will win through. If your path lies elsewhere, then you have got your sign through your failure. But do not put yourself in the position later in life of looking back and saying, Perhaps I might have had a career there had I tried. Deep in my bones I felt that I was on earth for some big purpose, and it was only by trying that I could tell that the purpose was not political, though I could never imagine myself as fettered to a party, or as thinking that all virtues lay with one set of men. My political work was not wasted. I stood in the two most heckling constituencies in Scotland, and through that odious and much-abused custom I gained a coolness on the platform, and a disregard for interruption and clamour which have stood me in good stead since. Indeed, I hold that it was to fashion me more perfectly for my ultimate work that I was twice passed through this furnace. I remember that once at Hoyk my soldier brother came to see how I was getting on, and was struck by the effect which I had upon my audience. It would be strange, Arthur, said he, if your real career should prove to be political and not literary. It will be neither. It will be religious, said I. Then we looked at each other in surprise, and both burst out laughing. The answer seemed quite absurd and pointless, for no remote possibility of such a thing suggested itself. It was a curious example of that unconscious power of prophecy which is latent within us. I had hardly landed from South Africa when I flung myself into the Edinburgh contest. Mr Cranston, later Sir Robert Cranston, a well-known citizen, was my chairman. When I arrived, a small meeting was held, and I, a weary man, listened while it was gravely debated, 
with much weighing of pros and cons, what my view was to be on each of the vital questions. Finally, it was all settled to their satisfaction and written down, preparatory to forming the election address. I had listened with some amusement, and when it was all over I said, "'Gentlemen, may I ask who is going to honour these promises that you are making?' "'Why, you, of course,' said they. "'Then I think it would be better if I made them,' said I, and crumpling up their document, I picked up a pen and wrote out my own views and my own address. It was well received and would have won the election, against enormous odds, some thousands of votes at the last trial, were it not for a very unexpected intervention. Those who remember the election will bear me out that it was an exciting affair. My opponent was a Mr Brown, a member of Nelson's publishing firm, which had large works in the constituency. I was fresh from the scene of war, and overflowing with zeal to help the army, so I spared myself in no way. I spoke from barrels in the street or any other pedestal I could find, holding many wayside meetings, besides my big meetings in the evening, which were always crowded and uproarious. There was nothing which I could have done and did not do. My opponent was not formidable, but I had against me an overwhelming party machine, with its registered lists and records of unbroken victory. It was no light matter to change the vote of a Scotsman, and many of them would as soon think of changing their religion. One serious mischance occurred. I was determined to do and say nothing, which I did not heartily mean, and this united Ireland, North and South, for the first time in history. The Irish vote was considerable, so that this was important. The South quarrelled with me because, though I favoured some devolution, I was not yet converted to home rule. The North was angry because I was in favour of a Catholic university for Dublin, so I had no votes from Ireland. When I went down to hold a meeting in a hall in the Cowgate, which is the Irish quarter, I was told that it had been arranged to break my platform up. This seems to have been true, but fortunately I got on good human terms with my audience and indeed moved some of them to tears by telling them of the meeting between the two battalions of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers at Ladysmith. So it happened that when a sinister-looking figure, a local horse slaughterer, appeared on the edge of the stage, he was received in silence. He moved slowly across and said something about free speech. I felt that if I or my people were violent, there would be a riot. So I simply said, Trot along, Sonny, trot along. He did trot along and disappeared on the other side of the stage. After the transit of this sinister star and my temporary eclipse, all went well to the end. As the day of the election approached, it became more and more evident that I was getting dangerous, but I was knocked out, fortunately for myself as I now discern, by a curious interference. There was an evangelical fanatic named Plimmer, living at Dunfermline, who thought it his special mission in life to keep Roman Catholic candidates out of Parliament. Therefore, at the eleventh hour, the very night before the voting, the whole district was placarded with big sheets to say that I was a Roman Catholic, that I had been educated by Jesuits, and in fact that my whole candidature was an attack upon Kirk and Covenant and lesser catechism, and everything dear to the Scottish heart. It was very cleverly done, and of course this fanatic alone could not have paid the expenses, though I cannot believe that Mr Brown knew anything of the matter. 
my unhappy supporters saw crowds of workmen reading these absurd placards and calling out, I've done with him. As it was, I very narrowly missed the seat, being only beaten by a few hundred votes. The question of an appeal came along, but the thing was so clever that it really was difficult to handle, since it was true enough that I had been educated by Jesuits, and yet absurdly untrue that this education influenced my present frame of mind. Therefore we had to leave it alone. Looking back, I am inclined to look upon Mr. Plimmer as one of the great benefactors of my life. He altered the points at the last moment and prevented me from being shunted onto a sideline which would perhaps have taken me to a dead end. I could never have been a party man, and there seems no place under our system for anyone else. At the moment I was a little sore, and I wrote a letter to the Scotsman, which defined my religious position as it was then, and caused, I believe, no little comment. I had the following letter from Sir John Borriston, who was the party organiser. The first sentence refers to the possibility of lodging a legal protest. 6 Great George Street, Westminster, London, S.W., October 18, 1900. Dr. Doyle, probably your Edinburgh advisers are right, but it is undoubtedly a misfortune that the perpetrators of attacks, such as that which was made upon you, should be allowed to go unpunished. Your fight was indeed a phenomenal one, and you have the consolation of knowing that if you did not actually win a seat for yourself, you did materially contribute to the Liberal Unionist victories in two other Edinburgh constituencies. This is generally admitted. I am sure you will feel that your first entry into active political life promises a full measure of success at no distant date, and I hope I may see you again before long to talk matters over. Yours very truly, signed John Borriston. I had no further urge to try political adventures, but when the tariff reform election of 1905 came round, I felt that I should make some sacrifice for the faith that was in me. Mr. Tommy Shaw, as he was called, now Lord Shaw, was one of the most energetic radicals in Scotland, and was reputed to be most firmly established in his seat, which was called the Border Boroughs, consisting of the small towns of Hoyk, Galashiels and Selkirk, all of them engaged in the woollen trade, and all of them hard hit by German competition. It seemed to me that if there was a good field anywhere for Mr Joseph Chamberlain's views on a protective tariff, it should be there, where an open market had caused such distress and loss. My reasoning was sound enough, but I had not reckoned upon the innate conservatism of the Scottish character, which cannot readjust its general principles to meet the particular case. A noble trait, but occasionally an unpractical one. Party politics are not a divine law, but simply a means to an end, which must adjust itself as the end varies. This time I really expended a good deal of work, as well as money, upon the attempt, for if you stand for others besides yourself, you have no choice but to work up to the last pound of steam. I might have added my neck to the other things which I risked, for in an endeavour to get into comradeship with the people I joined in what is known as the common riding at Hoyk, where a general holiday is proclaimed while the bounds of the common are ridden over and defined. Part of the proceedings was that each mounted man had to gallop full split down the high road, over a measured course of half a mile or so. 
the burghers lining the way and helping one by waving sticks and umbrellas. I was mounted on a hunter which I had never seen before, and which was full of spirit. Fortunately, this monstrous road performance came off late in the afternoon, and I had taken some of the spirit out of him by our ride round the common. I do not profess to be a great horseman, and I certainly nearly made the acquaintance of the Hoyk Turnpike. Sooner or later someone will be killed at that game, and horses must be lamed every year. Afterwards an interminable ballad was recited, with a sort of jingling chorus, to which all who are near the reciter keep time with their feet. As it would seem unsympathetic not to join in, I also kept time with the rhythm, and was amused and amazed when I got back to London, to see in the papers that I had danced a hornpipe in public before the electors. Altogether I had no desire to face another hoik common riding. The trouble in dealing with a three-town constituency, each town very jealous of the others, is that whatever you do has to be done thrice, or you give offence. I was therefore heartily sick of the preparation, and only too pleased when the actual election came off. I thought then, and I think now, that a sliding tariff, if only as an instrument for bargaining, would be altogether to our interest in this country, and would possibly cause some of our rivals to cease closing their markets to us, while they freely use the open market which we present. I still think that Chamberlain's whole scheme was an admirable one, and that it was defeated by a campaign of misrepresentation and actual lying, in which Chinese labour and dear food played a chief part. I stood among the ruins of a dismantled factory in the border boroughs, and I showed how it had been destroyed by German competition, and how, while we let their goods in free, they were levying taxes on ours, and spending the money so gained upon warships, with which we might some day have to reckon. The answer to my arguments consisted largely of coloured cartoons of Chinamen, working in chains in the mines of the Transvaal, and other nonsense of the sort. I worked very hard, so hard, that on the last night of the election I addressed meetings in each of the three towns, which, as they are separated by many miles of hilly roads, is a feat never done, I understand, before or since. However, it was of no avail and I was beaten, though I believe I am right in saying that the party showed a less decrease of votes than in any constituency in Scotland. The thing which annoyed me most about the election was that my opponent, Tommy Shaw, only appeared once, so far as I remember, in the constituency, and did everything by deputy, so that I found myself like a boxer, who is punching his rival's second, instead of himself all the time. I had the melancholy satisfaction of noting that the radical chairman who was so engrossed in the wrongs of Chinamen in the Transvaal went into liquidation within a few months, giving as his reason the pressure of foreign competition in the woollen trade. It is a vile business, this electioneering, though no doubt it is chastening in its effects. They say that mud baths are healthy and purifying, and I can compare it to nothing else. This applies particularly, I think, to Scotland, where the art of heckling has been carried to extremes. This asking of questions was an excellent thing, so long as it was honest in its desire to know the candidate's opinion upon a public measure. But the honest questions are the exception, and the unfortunate man is baited by all sorts of senseless trick questions from mischievous 
and irresponsible persons, which are designed to annoy him and make him seem foolish or ignorant. Some reform is badly needed in this matter. Often, after a speech of an hour, I had an hour of questions, one more absurd than another. The press records will show, I hope, that I held my own, for I knew my subject well, and by this time I had had a good schooling on the platform. Sometimes I counted heavily. I remember one robust individual coming down with a carefully prepared question, which he shouted from the back of the hall. I had been speaking of retaliation in commercial tariffs, and his question was, Mr. Candidate, how do you reconcile retaliation with the Sermon on the Mount? I answered, We cannot in life always reach the highest ideals. Have you sold all and given to the poor? The man was locally famous as having done nothing of the sort, and there was a howl of delight at my answer, which fairly drove him out of the hall. There is a peculiar dry Scottish wit which is very effective when you get it on your side. I remember one solemn person who had a loaf on the end of a pole, which he protruded towards me, as if it were a death's head, from the side-box of the theatre in which I spoke. The implication was, I suppose, that I would raise the price of bread. It was difficult to ignore the thing, and yet puzzling how to meet it. But one of my people in broad Doric cried, "'Tack it, hame, and eat it!' which quite spoiled the effect. Usually these interpolations are delivered in a dreamy, impersonal sort of voice. When in talking of the Transvaal War, I said with some passion, "'Who is going to pay for this war?' A seedy-looking person standing against the side wall said, "'I'm no caring,' which made both me and the audience laugh. Again I remember my speech being quite interrupted by a joke which was lost upon me. I had spoken of the self-respect and decent attire of American factory hands, Gang and look at Bruins, said the dreamy voice. I have never yet learned whether Brown's factory was famous for tidiness or the reverse, but the remark convulsed the audience. The radicals used to attend my meetings in great numbers, so that really I think there were often hostile audiences which I addressed. Since their own candidate held hardly any meetings, I was the only fun to be had. Before the meeting, the packed house would indulge in cries and countercries with rival songs and slogans, so that as I approached the building it sounded like feeding time at the zoo. My heart often sank within me as I listened to the uproar, and I would ask myself what on earth I meant by placing myself in such a position. Once on the platform, however, my fighting blood warmed up, and I did not quail before any clamour. It was all a great education for the future, though I did not realise it at the time but followed blindly where some strange inward instinct led me on. What tied me most was the personal liberties taken by vulgar people, which is a very different thing from poor people, whom I usually find to be very delicate in their feelings. I take a liberty with no man, and there is something in me which rises up in anger if any man takes a liberty with me. A candidate cannot say all he thinks on this matter, or his party may suffer. I was always on my guard lest I should give offence in this way, and I well remember how on one occasion I stood during a three days campaign a good many indignities with exemplary patience. I was on edge, however, and as luck would have it, at the very last moment, as I stood on the platform waiting for the London train, one of my own people, an exuberant young bounder, 
came up with a loud familiar greeting and squeezed my right hand until my signet ring nearly cut me. It opened the sluice and out came a torrent of whaler language which I had hoped that I had long ago forgotten. The blast seemed to blow him bodily across the platform and formed a strange farewell to my supporters. Thus ended my career in politics. I could say with my friend Kendrick Bangs, the electors have returned me to the bosom of my family. A very pleasant constituency it is. I had now thoroughly explored that path and had assured myself that my life's journey did not lie along it. And yet I was deeply convinced that public service was waiting for me somewhere. One likes to feel that one has some small practical influence upon the affairs of one's time. But I encourage myself by the thought that though I have not been a public man, yet my utterances in several pamphlets and numerous letters in the press may have had more weight with the public since I was disassociated from any political interest which could sway my judgment. End of chapter 20